Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for October 2017. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we go through the literature that caught our eye in the last month. So let's start with JAMA and the ART trial. So this prospective RCT compared lung recruitment manoeuvres associated with PEEP titration according to the best respiratory system compliance versus a conventional low PEEP strategy. And they looked at 28-day mortality in patients who had less than 72 hours of moderate to severe ARDS at enrolment. Um, so this was conducted in 120 ICUs from nine countries and they enrolled 1,010 patients over five and a half years. That's a big study. The two ventilation strategies were firstly the intervention group was an experimental strategy with a lung recruitment manoeuvre and PEEP titration according to the best respiratory system compliance and the control strategy was a low PEEP strategy and all patients received volume assist control mode until weaning. It was an event-driven study designed to continue until 520 events, which were 28-day deaths, had accrued. And this was estimated to provide 90% power, assuming a hazard ratio of 0.75 and a type 1 error of 5%. So what did they find? Well, at baseline, uh, it was two days since ventilation was initiated and 15 hours since ARDS onset that um, patients were enrolled, so pretty early. Only 10% were prone. The, the average PF ratio was 118. Uh, the average tidal volume was 5.8 mils per kilo, uh, predicted body weight. Plateau pressure, 25. Driving pressure, 13.5. PEEP, 12. So pretty average, moderate to severe type of uh, ARDS settings. In the treatment, uh, what happened? Well, 96% in the experimental group received a lung recruitment manoeuvre after randomization, and in 15.6% of cases, that manoeuvre was interrupted, most often due to um, hypotension or a decrease in oxygen saturation. The mean titrated PEEP was 17. Uh, lung recruitment was repeated after PEEP titration in 393 of the 500 patients, that's 78%. And after the initial recruitment and PEEP titration, alveolar recruitment was not repeated from day 1 to 7 in most patients, 60%. Um, overall, the mean PEEP values were higher in the experimental group than in the control group. The mean plateau pressures were higher in the experimental group, although they were always less than 30. Median tidal volumes were below 6 mils per kilo body weight in both groups. The mean PF ratios were higher in the experimental group and the use of neuromuscular blockers was higher in the experimental group, 97% versus 73%. That's a difference of 24%. And that, reflect the, that probably reflected the protocol requirement for their use before the recruitment manoeuvre. There was no differences amongst groups in other co-interventions or on the need of rescue therapies. The primary outcome was 28-day all-cause mortality and it was significantly higher in the intervention group, 55%, versus the conventional group, 49%, and that's a hazard ratio of 1.2, 95% confidence intervals, 1.01 to 1.42, and a p-value of 0.04. 
The six-month all-cause mortality was also higher in the experimental group 65 versus 60, P of 0.04, and there was a significant increase in pneumothoraces and barrowed trauma in the experimental group. So, a strategy using a lung recruitment manoeuvre and titrated PEEP in association with volume-assisted control ventilation increased mortality of patients with moderate to severe ARDS and also increased pneumothoraces and barotrauma. That's an unexpected finding and led to the uh, fairly immediate stopping of the FARLAP trial, which was the Australian-New Zealand recruitment manoeuvre study, and I suspect has led to a pause in units that were considering doing recruitment manoeuvres with this worrying outcome. Okay, let's move on to the New England Journal of Medicine with the culprit shock investigators trial on PCI strategies in patients with AMI and cardiogenic shock. So should immediate PCI in cardiogenic shock include the culprit lesion only or non-culprit vessels as well? So the current evidence and guidelines reflect the uncertainty in this area. European guidelines recommend the consideration of immediate PCI of non-culprit lesions in patients with cardiogenic shock, whereas US guidelines give no specific recommendation, although US uh, use, appropriate use criteria indicate it is appropriate to perform immediate revascularization of a non-culprit artery if cardiogenic shock persists after revascularization of the culprit artery. So the culprit lesion only PCI versus multivessel PCI in cardiogenic shock trial was designed to test the hypothesis that PCI of the culprit lesion only with the option of staged revascularization of non-culprit lesions was better than immediate multivessel PCI in patients with multivessel coronary artery disease and AMI with cardiogenic shock. So what did they uh, look at? Well, the primary endpoint was a composite of death from any cause or severe renal failure leading to renal replacement therapy within 30 days after randomization. And the result was significantly lower in culprit PCI group compared to the multivessel group, 45.9% versus 54.4%, relative risk of 0.83, p-value of 0.01. And there was only minor variation in that when uh, analysis was performed in a per-protocol or as-treated population and pre-specified subgroup analyses were consistent. In terms of secondary outcomes, all-cause mortality was lower in the culprit PCI group, 43 versus 52. The rate of renal replacement therapy wasn't any different. Rates of recurrent AMI, re-hospitalisation for CCF, bleeding and stroke did not differ between the two and the time to hemodynamic stabilisation, use and duration of catecholamines, duration of ICU stay, use and duration of mechanical ventilation didn't differ. So in summary, in patients with multivessel coronary artery disease and acute AMI with cardiogenic shock, PCI of the culprit lesion only, with the option of staged revascularization of non-culprit lesions later, was superior to immediate multivessel PCI, with the difference driven mainly by significantly lower mortality in the corporate lesion-only PCI group.
Did we learn anything else? Well, the 30-day mortality in this group is really high, 44 to 50%. And there is a lot of ICU, circulatory and ventilatory support. So this is a group that matter to us intensivists. Okay, back to JAMA. We have the in-press study group. Effect of individualised versus standard blood pressure management strategies on post-operative organ dysfunction among high-risk patients undergoing major surgery. So, does a strategy based on individual blood pressure targets reduce post-operative complications in this population? High-risk patients having major abdo surgery. Well, what did they do? So it's an RCT of 292 patients of 1,500 screened, most of whom underwent abdominal surgery. And they looked at individualized management, which was targeting systolic blood pressure within 10% of normal resting value using norepinephrine or noradrenaline. And standard practice, which is patients received IV ephedrine in 6 milligram boluses for any decrease in systolic blood pressure below 80 or lower than 40% from the patient's reference value. Both groups got ringers lactate, 4 mL per kilo per hour, and additional fluids based on a protocolized hemodynamic algorithm using 6% starch, 250 mL boluses. The intervention period lasted from anesthesia induction to 4 hours after completion of surgery. What did they find? Well, in terms of treatment effect, the mean systolic was 123 in the individual group and 116 in the standard group. And that's a difference of 6.5 millimetres of mercury. To me, that doesn't feel like a lot, but who knows. The primary outcome, there were significantly lower rates of post-operative organ dysfunction, 38% versus 52%, uh, respectively, with a risk adjusted risk ratio of 073 so this was a composite of SIRS and at least one organ system dysfunction occurring by day seven after surgery. So it's a complicated primary outcome. The occurrence and severity of organ dysfunctions were assessed at least once daily. In terms of the secondary outcomes, the individual components that were significantly different were rifle criteria, altered consciousness, and sepsis by day 30. There was no difference in ICU or hospital length of stay or 30-day mortality. So what does that mean? Well, among patients undergoing abdominal surgery, an individualized blood pressure management strategy during surgery tailored to individual patient physiology may improve post-operative outcome that in particular it looks like rifle criteria conscious state and sepsis it seems an average increase of systolic blood pressure of six millimeters may have been enough to prevent complications now of course that's an average and larger changes in blood pressure and periods of hypotension may have been prevented so we're probably not seeing or completely understanding the full influence or all the factors involved in this effect Still, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see how anaesthetists in general respond to this study. Let's go to a different topic, um, end-of-life care, and the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Um, and this is an article called Accounting for Patient Preferences Regarding Life-Sustaining Treatment in Evaluations of Medical Effectiveness and Quality. So person-centred care requires engagement of patients in decision-making. In particular, 
in end-of-life care, clinicians are encouraged to elicit and document patients' preferences for life-sustaining treatments early in the course of hospitalisation. With do not resuscitate or do not intubate commonly documented documented limitation of life-sustaining treatment orders, there is an important question that is often asked. Are patient preferences for treatment limitations a predictor of mortality, an effector of mortality, or both? And there are some reasonable assumptions that we can make. Firstly, patients with pre-existing serious illness are more likely to die with an acute illness and are more likely to have treatment limitations. Patients with treatment limitations are less likely to receive a treatment that might stave off death during an acute illness. The presence of a treatment limitation is a strong predictor of mortality. Patient preferences are routinely disregarded in assessment of treatment effectiveness, healthcare quality and reimbursement. So this article addresses the issue of bias and confounding by unmeasured patient preferences, which is a type of confounding by indication, as it relates to end-of-life preferences. In addition, they explore strategies to incorporate patient preferences into evaluations of care delivery and quality. So influence of patient preferences on research findings was the first subject. So unmeasured confounding by patient preference is a serious threat to observational and innovational research. So the authors use the examples of patients with DNR who are either less likely to receive a drug and more likely to die in an observational design study, thereby increasing treatment effect. Or in an RCT, the effect of patient preference for treatment limitation is unlikely to be modified by disease or and intervention and could affect outcome if not adequately elicited prior to enrolment. Finally, interventions that improve the eliciting of patient preferences may lead to more treatment limitations and earlier death, a result that may be viewed as a worse outcome. The second issue they discuss is the influence of patient preferences in evaluation of hospital quality. So a similar problem occurs at an institutional level. Patients with advanced chronic illness may choose not to have invasive mechanical ventilation, foregoing an intervention that will improve short-term mortality in preference for care that aligns with their values and goals of comfort, communication or autonomy at the end of life. However, rewarding care that focuses on lower mortality may create it probably will and does create incentives that ignore patient values. For example, the 30-day surgical mortality quality measure may create a perverse incentive to continue full support from day 29 to day 31, even in patients with poor prognosis who wish to discontinue life-sustaining therapies. Similarly, hospitals that treat many patients with pre-existing DNR orders may have high mortality rates, which are the basis for publicly reported quality rankings that determine reimbursement and that's a disincentive for them to engage in person-centered care. The third issue they discuss, they discuss is strategies um, to incorporate patient preferences into effectiveness research and quality measurement. So behavioral and decision science suggests that many personal preferences are constructed rather than uncovered 
in the context of making specific decisions. This is an iterative process involving bi-directional exchange of information that often shapes uncertain, incomplete or inconsistent patient values into actionable categories of preferences for life-sustaining treatments. So how, how to do this in practice? Firstly, elicit preferences. That takes time, training and tools. Two, document preferences in a standardised and accessible way. Three, retrieve preferences. Four, adhere to preferences. So don't discard previous preferences. They tend to be stable, although they evolve. Five, account for preferences. Research design and quality measures need to systematically account for treatment limitation preferences. This could be as simple as excluding patients who elect to limit life-sustaining treatment from mortality as an outcome. But including preference-sensitive outcomes, such as effective palliative care, or even process-based outcomes, such as vasopressin, but not ventilation for sepsis. What a challenge, including patient preferences into research and quality outcomes. I highly recommend that you read this article. So let's just stay on uh, end-of-life care uh, and go back to JAMA, where we have the association between immigrant status and end-of-life care in Ontario, Canada. So this population-based cohort study examines the end-of-life care for recent immigrant patients in Ontario and compares it to long-standing resident patients. So what did they do? They identified uh, 967,000 people who died in Ontario over an 11-year period and they were categorised as recent immigrants if Canadian citizenship and residency was granted between 85 and 2015 and within that there were subgroups created according to duration of um, citizenship or residency status and all of the patients were defined as long term. By linking multiple healthcare databases they collected data on patient characteristics and outcomes with their primary outcome place of death. What did they find? 5% of decedents were recent immigrants with diverse global origins. The median age at death was 75 to 80 years, with ischemic heart disease, dementia and lung cancer the most common causes for both groups. A higher proportion of recent immigrants who died, died in intensive care, 16 versus 10%. This increase persisted after adjusting for differences in age, sex, income, geography and cause of death. So the adjusted uh, relative risk of dying in ICU uh, was 1.3 with 95% confidence intervals of 1.27 to 1.32, pretty tight. In their last six months of life, recent immigrant, immigrant decedents experienced... Uh, more, even after uh, adjusting for those confounders, of a number of things. And so what they experienced more of included ICU admissions, hospital admissions, mechanical ventilation, dialysis, perk feeding tubes, tracheostomy. All of those things occurred significantly more frequently in recent immigrants than uh, non-immigrants in the last six months of life. The relative risk of death in ICU for recent immigrants versus long-standing residents was highest 
If they were older than 80 years, female and had a lower comorbidity index, there was substantial variation in end-of-life care according to region of birth and time since immigration. And differences were associated with time in Canada with a relative risk of dying in ICU of 1.42 if they immigrated 20 to 30 years before death and 2.03 if it was less than two years. So what does that all mean? Well, first, it's really interesting that someone did this study, um, particularly in a world where immigration is important and growing and care of refugees and immigrants is something that we are increasingly concerned about. There is previous evidence that suggests immigrants face cultural and logistical challenges in end-of-life care due to decreased health literacy, language ability, different modes of family-based decision-making and filial responsibility, decreased access to care due to insufficient financial and social resources, and different end-of-life care preferences. This study shows a different pattern of end-of-life care in recent immigrants with a more medicalised death. This was more prominent in the more recent immigrants and varied with region of birth and was not due to socioeconomic status or cause of death. It doesn't tell us why it happens, if it is good or bad, and what we should do about it. As the authors point out, it does suggest we probably need to understand this area better. Okay, a move away from end-of-life care and on to sepsis. The timing of early antibiotics and hospital mortality in sepsis in the Blue Journal. Early administration of antibiotics in sepsis and septic shock is a widely accepted measure of quality care. The exact timing thresholds remain elusive. This U.S. retrospective study of 35,000 adult patients with sepsis who received antibiotics within six hours of presentation from 21 EDs in Northern California from 2010 to 2013 examines this relationship. So what did they do? They identified patients using the former sepsis-septic shock criteria from electronic databases using ICD sepsis codes and received antibiotics within six hours. They randomly selected 5,000 patients hospitalized in 2010 and 10,000 patients hospitalized in each year between 2011 and 2013. They collected granular data including vital signs, lab values, number of OBS and severity of illness indices and they used this to try to account for severity of illness that may have influenced the clinician decision to administer antibiotics. What did they find? Well in terms of characteristics. 13% met the criteria for septic shock, 52% severe sepsis, mortality was 4, 8.8 and 26% in patients with sepsis, severe sepsis and septic shock. The comparisons between groups were highly significant. For example, the frequency of elevated band forms was 10% in sepsis and 31% in septic shock. Shock patients had the highest mean lactate, 4.6, and among patients with septic shock, 2.4% and 43% were on vasopressors by hour 1 and 6. Overall, the median time to antibiotics was 2 hours, and that was shortest in septic shock, 1.7 hours, and longest in sepsis, 2.3. 
patients receiving earlier antibiotics had greater severity of illness compared with those receiving later antibiotics based on acuity level, uh, severity of illness scoring, etc. Patients receiving early antibiotics also had the highest unadjusted mortality, 11.4% for hour 1, 9.5% for hour 2. The primary outcome was fully adjusted odds ratio for hospital mortality based on antibiotic timing and it was 1.09 per elapsed hour after ED presentation. And this was similar for patients with sepsis, severe sepsis uh, and the increase in septic shock. The absolute increase in mortality associated with an hour's delay in antibiotic administration was 0.3% for sepsis, 0.4% for severe sepsis, and 1.8% for shock. So what does it mean? Well, sure, it's retrospective, but it's big, it's granular, and we're unlikely to see an RCT on this subject because we're not going to be prepared or have equipoise about delaying antibiotics. Increased time to antibiotics in, e in ED was associated with increased mortality in all sepsis severity groups and, and was greatest in septic shock. So these findings support currently held beliefs that administering early antibiotics to infected patients with systemic inflammation is beneficial for reducing mortality. Although antibiotics given within the first hour of registration were associated with the greatest benefit, Antibiotics given between hours 2 and 5 were associated with similar odds of mortality. So I think it's telling us to give antibiotics as early as we can. So let's finish off with the IceCube 2 study network paper in JAMA. Effective systematic intensive care unit triage on long-term mortality among critically ill elderly patients in France. So does a program to increase intensive care unit admission rates amongst old critically ill patients have benefit on long-term outcomes? Many physicians have doubts as to whether elderly patients benefit from ICU admission due to increased risk of death, associated with a sort of decreased physiological reserve, frailty, chronic disease, etc. There are no RCTs addressing this, and observational studies report conflicting results. So this was a cluster randomised clinical trial of the effect of systematic recommendation of ICU admission for 3,036 critically ill patients aged over 75 years of age, compared to usual practice, on six-month mortality. The details, it was cluster randomised in 24 hospitals, each had at least one ICU and one ED in France from Jan 12 to November 15. Hospitals were randomly assigned to either intervention or control. In the intervention group, a program to promote systematic ICU admission was implemented. In this program, ED and ICU physicians were asked to systematically recommend an ICU admission for all included patients. During the triage process, eligible patients had pre-specified clinical conditions, had to have preserved functional status, nutritional status, and be free from cancer. Other interventions to promote ICU uh, admission included that there was a member of the steering committee that visited each centre and presented a protocol. Um, the ED physician had to call the ICU physician. It was sort of systematic. The ICU physician was required to evaluate the patient at the bedside. They had to make joint decisions. 
Um, if there was no ICU bed available, they had to be transferred to another hospital where there was. There were monthly meetings, booklets, posters, etc. Standard practice, uh, those hospitals just did whatever they want. Sample size, they considered an estimated 32% six-month mortality rate in the control group. Uh, a sample size of 2,800 was required to have 74% power to detect a 6% difference in mortality. To take into account a cluster randomization with inflation dependent on intra-class correlation coefficient, the number of patients to be included was increased to 3,000. Recruitment was ultimately ended when the targeted sample size was achieved in each cluster. Uh, the median age was 85 years. Uh, septic shock was in 14% respiratory failure, requiring non-invasive 11%, and 86% lived at home prior to admission. So a pretty old but independent group. The primary outcome, patients in the systematic strategy group had an increased risk of death at six months, 45% versus 39%, difference of 6%, p-value of less than 0.001. No one saw that coming, but the difference did not remain significant after adjustments for baseline characteristics. Then it was a relative risk of 1.05 and everyone could breathe a sigh of relief. Secondary outcomes. The ICU admission rate was higher in the systematic strategy group. That's good. It should be. It was 61% versus 34%, 27% difference. And that remained significant after adjustment for baseline characteristics. In post hoc analysis, patients admitted to the ICU in the systematic group had a higher SAP score. More underwent mechanical ventilation, 40 versus 30%, less had non-invasive and less often underwent fluid resuscitation, 21 versus 32%. There was no difference in ICU and hospital length of stay and ICU mortality was not significantly different. Hospital mortality was different. The systematic group had a 30% mortality compared to 21% in the control group. Patients discharged alive from hospital in the systematic strategy group had an increased length of hospital stay compared to patients in the standard group. There was a greater decrease from baseline index of independence in activities of daily living at six months in the systematic strategy group. Self-reported physical quality of life at six months wasn't different. And self-reported mental quality of life at six months was higher in the systematic strategy group. So what does this tell us? It's a bit confusing. A program of systematic identification and ICU admission of independent elderly patients without frailty, cancer or previous loss of function leads to more ICU admissions, longer hospital length of stay among survivors and no benefit in six-month mortality. So what do we make of that? So it doesn't mean that ICU admission is non-beneficial to all elderly patients. It may mean that trying to increase admission of patients who are not currently offered ICU care is not of benefit. Now that could suggest the current system is making good decisions or even though admission to ICU is increased, the issues that lead to death are not reversed. It may reflect increased end-of-life decision-making as a result of ICU admission, although that level of detail is not provided. And finally, this is a cohort of cancer-free, non-frail, independent people. What of those who are not? 
what should be offered to them. Perhaps the authors provide the final word most concisely. There is a need to systematically and thoughtfully assess the potential benefits and harms of ICU admission for every elderly patient presenting with critical illness. And on that note, I will end the podcast for October 2017. Come to the website and have a look around. Otherwise, we will see you next month.